Okay, good evening, and thank you for coming this evening. Um, I was reflecting um, on how appropriate it is that the first research talk I give since rejoining Oxford as a professor is in the Middle East Center and on the Friday um, research seminar specifically because many years ago, um, as a, I think, 26-year-old terrified graduate student, it was the Friday seminar where I gave my very first presentation ever. So I hope there's been some improvement, but <laughs> sometimes one isn't sure. Okay, so let me just... In December 1871, the Beirut magazine El Jenin published an article on Atarbia um, by an author who introduced herself as a reader living in Alexandria, Mrs. Wastin Masara, and also as the wife of Salim Effendi Hamoui, who, she said, I quote, had permitted me to read your publication, end of quote. In a prologue letter to the editor, she issued a summons to literate women. She had turned to reading out of domestic need, she said, including arguments with her husband over child-rearing methods. And then she had delved into writing because she wanted her own experience to create public benefit. What inspired Masadra, presumably in addition to the, her marital fights, was seeing women's bylines in El Genin and reading their texts, such as the story Henry Wa Emilia, uh, authored by Adelaide Albustani, the daughter of El Genin's founding editor. Adelaide's much younger sister, Alice, born the year that Adelaide's story came out, would become one of the Arab world's first female novelists. Westin Masara, as far as we know, remained primarily a reader, all the more significant, perhaps, that she so strongly exhorted women to join the ranks of writers. She used figurative language that played on the journal's title. Oh, women beautified by the finest qualities, she said. The gardens have opened a gate to us that we may gather the fruit of success. We have only to divest ourselves of the garb of indolent negligence and to don that of energetic application, for we are the daughters of the 19th century. How can we not make it clear to men that women absolutely must enter the gardens where literary, moral, and intellectual work flourishes? Since El Genin encouraged submissions from women, though Masara wondered why more had not appeared in the journal, she had decided to write in. Signaling the importance of encouragement by example in a writing community of women, Masara touched on other aspects of her own and her female contemporaries' relationships to writing and to fiction. These include linkages between fiction and issues of gendered behavior, morality, education, and who should read, women's experiential knowledge and its representation, the creation or invocation of female readerships as instances of gender solidarity, men's attitudes, and periodicals' importance as venues for new writers and discussion forums. And I start with a reader rather than a writer because I want to emphasize that women's women and girls' contributions to the um, emergence of the Arabic novel in the 19th century is not just about writing novels, it's also about being readers um, and about all the various contentions around that. So in the first half of my talk today, I'm going to discuss the early history of the Arabic novel um, in a slightly more general way, but with reference specifically to these kinds of issues and trying to draw out the gendered implications. And then I'm going to try to give you a sort of sampling of a few of the novels that were written in the 19th century specifically by Arab women. 
In Arab capitals, as elsewhere in the world, the novel was one artifact of an ongoing process of social, social and political change. Emerging notions of subjectivity entwined with new technologies and state-led institutional development fostered, as Boutras Halak and Heidi Towell have put it, I quote, a modification of representations of the world and a profound transformation of the system of symbolic production. The same process bolstered the novel's strong association with changing configurations of male-female social and sexual relations. Of course, in any language, the novel's forte as a form, tracing the intimate and conflicted trajectories of human individuals and community, is bound to eliminate questions of gendered and sexual identities and relations. But the specific ways these topics were inflected in early Arabic novels reflected the fact that gender politics were central to you might call them wider, I don't think they were any more important, but to debates on modernity, political freedom, and nation formation. In other words, all of these topics were very much caught up together in public discourse. Such questions and how gender definition articulated them were at the heart of the Arabic novel from its beginning. And thus, this situates the genre of the novel in its capacity as a technology of opinion formation and gendered tarbiyah as a key archive for gender-sensitive intellectual history. Masada's letter suggested that even when they inframed their writing as socially responsible activism, women found writing for publication a frightening prospect that demanded a modesty discourse. When women spoke of shortcomings and inabilities as writers, they reminded readers what even the few literate Arab women of the time were up against, limited opportunities for education and literary training, little access to the public and semi-public oratorical <coughs> occasions through which male intellectuals honed their skills, no way to acquire the sustained observation of social worlds that persuasive writing demands. Yet a modesty discourse grounded in social expectations about women's public reticence also cannily foregrounded their expressive abilities despite the obstacles they faced. Masadra decided to write, even though I am not amongst this arena's eloquent knights, nor able to sally forth to competitors' fights. I seek pardon for stumbling where literary thoroughbreds do not, or if I've not offered a style finely wrought. Masada's rhymed and figured prose showed very well that she knew and could try her hand at the prevailing requirements for prose finely wrought, style finely wrought. Various beginning points for the Arabic novel have been claimed. Uh, I'm just going to go through this very briefly. Um, 1858, Khalil al-Khuri establishes the first privately published newspaper and immediately starts publishing his own fiction in it. Um, 1865, when a highly philosophical allegorical narrative called Rebet al-Haq by Francis al-Marash comes out. The 1870s, when Al-Jinan is publishing fiction by people like Salim al-Bustani, who was the brother of Adelaide and Alice, and Norman al-Qusatali, two very important early novelists. Um, or the 1890s, when Georges Zedin starts publishing his historical novels in his own journal, Al-Halal, or even as late as 1913-14 with Mohammed Haikal's Zainab, which used to be taken as the, the sort of canonical start of the, um, the novel. I'm not really interested in the debate about origins and firsts because I think it can only lead to a teleological dead end, and of course it has to do with how you define literary value and so forth. I'm more interested in practice, how 19th century writers developed writing strategies and what they thought they were doing. Nevertheless, it's important to look at the history and the different 
points about when this was happening in order to sort of situate um, women within it. It's also been asserted that the very first Arabic novel was authored by a woman, but I don't agree with this argument. Um, when women began to publish fiction, they and their readers had to contend with men's already existing fictional representations of them. Just as importantly, they faced hostile and suspicious attitudes voiced in the press towards fiction, on the one hand, and towards female capability and intention. Often these two strands of hostility were woven together. No wonder it was a frightening prospect to publish as a woman. Writing in 1871, Masara looked forward, maintaining her metaphor of the female knight. I told myself there must come a day in which we cast off this distressing fear and we gallop into the arenas of literature with our words and our deeds, when crowds of women vie to publish the beneficial works that their talent feeds. Forty years later, at the, um, just before the start of World War I, the arena of women's fiction was not yet crowded, but it was inhabited. The story by Adelaide Bustani, to which Masara referred, is the sole signed, published, female-authored fictional text before the late 1880s that I know of at this point. But between 1888 and the onset of World War I, women put their names to at least 13 original novelistic texts, as well as quite a number of translations and many short stories. I wish I had time to talk about translation today because it's absolutely fascinating, but I'm afraid I don't. There were probably, and here is the list of the 13 that we know about, there were probably considerably more fictions authored by women. I suspect that some women might have used male pseudonyms. Today, I can only give you a telegraphic sense by looking at briefly at a few novels produced in the cultural hubs of 19th century Arab life, Beirut, Cairo, Alexandria, and New York. Readers' letters tell us the spokes reached further. Readers existed in provincial towns as education expanded in Ottoman Syria and in Egypt. And they also existed in Europe and the Americas, where emigrants headed, fleeing political strife, repression, and economic hardship all conditions that surface thematically in these novels by women. As had been true in Europe, the fact that the novel was new cultural territory and not established as a respectable form actually gave women more latitude to enter its arena, as did the fact that with the enormous leap in private publishing in the late 19th century, there were many new venues for fiction. I've already suggested that from its beginnings, the non-official Arabic press published fiction from Hadikat al-Akhbar and al-Janan to al-Ahram, where um, Saeed al-Bustani's novel Dat al-Khidr, The Secluded Woman, appeared. And I also mentioned Zaydan's uh, monthly journal, Al-Halal. Women's magazines, first appearing in 1892, took an active interest in fiction, publishing it and commenting on new novels. Almost every month in its books column, the women's magazine Anis Al-Jalis announced new novels, highlighting their attention to women's state. In May 1902, the magazine heralded El Rede Assouria Fidiyar El Amrikia, the Syrian maiden in American lands, calling it a literary and amatory novel by Qaisar Effendi Al Ma'luf, editor of the periodical El Brazil. Anis Al-Jalis lauded Ma'luf's novel pointedly. While providing entertainment, the magazine said, it investigates conditions of the Eastern young woman, it shows clerics' intrusiveness in Syria, and it describes Syrian immigrants' status in Brazil. 
its author deserves praise, end of quote. As magazine editors, women were as likely as men to publish their own fiction. Alexandri Khori Averino, founding editor of Anis Jalis, published her translation adaptation, Shaqa' al-Umahat, serially. She didn't name the source's author or title, and in fact, this is one of the fascinating things about translation. There may not have been an original. She may have written it as an original and called it a translation. And I'm happy to talk more about that if anybody's interested in the question period. In volume three, she announced that the entire novel was now available bound from the magazine's office. And she said, with its exemplary lessons, we were glad it was well received. Similarly, Lubiba Hashim published her novel Shirin in volumes one and two of her new journal, Fatata Shah, which came out in 1906. Novel reading's popularity also shows in the slew of periodicals founded from 1884 on to publish fiction, like Muntakh Bet or Musemret Eshab, whose editor chose a title evoking a long-attested cultural practice, Musemret, as the convivial evening ses session for storytelling and conversation. And he used it to label his vehicle for this new technology of entertainment called Erruweya or Errumen. Musamara and Druweya were terms indicating continuity with oral storytelling and oral storytelling forms, while El Musamara also suggested continuity between audiences for oral storytelling and readers of the new popular romantic tales of these periodicals. This is important to point out because writing men and writing women drew on structures and motifs of oral storytelling as they began to craft a new genre. We must think of the early Arabic novel not so much as a new genre or a rupture, or not only as that, but also as a palimpsest of earlier texts and writing practices. When, in 1881, the prominent cleric and reformist Muhammad Abdu famously criticized fiction as books of lies, counterposing it to true histories, he excoriated those who published and read Seer Sha'abiya, popular epics, though he had to admit their great popularity. He said, many people are occupied with such things, and the books have been published hundreds of times here, finding a ready market, with very little time elapsing between first and second imprints." End of quote. Abdu's article, in fact, suggested the permeable boundaries, if boundaries they even were, between different forms associated with oral composition and circulation on the one hand, and the novel on the other. Periodical readers demanded fiction. In 1895, Georges Zedan, already emerging as the era's leading historical novelist, reminisced that, founding, that when he founded El Halal three years before, he had resolved to devote a section to historical novels, and he published his Istibdad al Mamalik. Then, he says, we decided to change course. So we published volumes two and three without a novel, but a group of reader literateurs urged us to return to our initial resolve. Similar pressures emerged in, emerge in women's magazine's rhetoric. Wishing readers farewell on its first issue's last page, Anis Algelis re referred defensively to fiction's absence. We intended to initiate our magazine with an elegant, charming, and refined novel by a famous writer. But there was so much other material that we had to include. We do promise our readers, male and female, that we will feature a novel in the next issue or the one after, God willing. Fiction was popular. It sold issues, clearly. That was the problem. Ambivalence, defensiveness, and unease, as well as outright indignation, prevailed in discussions in the press over the projected effects of fiction reading, as Abdu's words might suggest. 
as journals welcomed fiction, the debate on its consumption grew fierce. Some commentators who were implacably against novels linked the genre explicitly to sexuality, warning of imminent danger to the national community. The Egyptian moralist translator, although I don't think he ever translated any novels, um, Ahmed Fathi Zaghloul, compared novels to an ancient presence in Arabic letters, Kutub al-Majun, books of shameless rebeldry. In 1882, the newspaper publisher Yaqub Sarouf stated, if we were to study the causes of young men's and young women's perturbations, we would locate them mostly in premature love arising from reading novels. No one involved with raising children should give them any books other than those that train their minds and perfect their morals. Sarouf's journal, El Muqtata, refused loftily to publish novels, but that soon changed, pressures of the market. And 20 years after his anti-novel polemic, Sarouf himself penned three novels. If some pundits even said producers and publishers of novels ought to be sent to jail, and they did, Others saw novels as sound replacements for the ancient tales of ribaldry that Zaghloul had attacked. Meanwhile, novelists themselves, men and women, justified their practices on the basis of moral and didactic worth, either because they truly believed that novel reading could change behavior and instill decorum, or because it was a plausible argument that they and their readers could take comfort in. Some recognized novels as worthwhile simply for providing distraction from the stresses of modern life. But this did not mean they eschewed the didactic mission. If Muhammad Abdu did not speak about the gender of novel readers or writers, the discourse on novels carried out in the Arabic press and via authors' prefaces did bear directly on feminine involvement in the form. As in the novel's history everywhere, the discourse concentrated on girls and young women as epitomizing the dangerously impressionable, corruptible reader. This concern intersected with other sensitivities, quote-unquote, unprotected young women, newspapers warned, were adopting new habits and haunting the streets. Conduct books, another emerging genre linked to the novel as a technology of national tarbiyah, warned girls not to dawdle in front of shop windows on their way home from school. Issues of honor as focused on the female body infused attitudes to fiction writing, while the new Arabic novels enacted these issues, and the much maligned French novel in translation, which was probably often, as I said, an original creation in Arabic, told sometimes lurid and usually tragic tales of honor lost. Novels might induce particular parental anxiety as mothers and fathers observed their daughters reading silently for long periods of time, ensconced in another world. That girls in particular were regarded as impressionable meant parents were warned sternly over and over to monitor their daughter's reading. But one could write novels with the moral training of allegedly impressionable females in mind. Take one Hanun Namur, who in 1888 said the following in the preface to his novel. I have tried my utmost to avoid anything that would transgress proper comportment and the discipline of polite behavior. Any man reading my novel, I thought, could then put it in his wife's hands or his sister's or his daughter's. If she could not read, then he could read it to her so that she could take as her model the deeds of this Lady Zenobia, my novel's leading character. And in case the message was not clear enough, he titled the work Zenobia Exemplar for the Ladies. So there we have it. If female novelists emphasized novels' capacity as moral didactic vehicles, women's magazines did not always approve of the conduct novels penned by men. Anissa Jalis announced publication of El Reda El Mutanakira, 
1901, The Maiden in Disguise, and said it was by, quote, one of the literateurs of this country under the signature Al-Bahith ibn al-Asr, um, obviously a pseudonym, researcher, son of the age, as a response to Qasim Amin Bey's book, The Emancipation of Women. Amin's controversial 1899 book generated many responses, and Nisa Jalisa's carefully worded critique showed how women commenting in the press had to walk a fine line between supporting novels as social commentary and objecting to misogynistic content. Al-Bahith, the magazine said, I quote, has overstuffed his title with excessive words, exaggeratedly castigating women and ascribing a degree of treachery and fickle behavior to them. Such words ought not to issue from a refined, educated, decent person. Nevertheless, we thank him for writing and speaking up. We can reach fine truths only through bridges such as this novel. The argument was about more than books. It concerned different models of tarbiyah. Was it better to censor the young's reading as a way to shield them from the less salutary behaviors of human beings? Or was it better to expose them to the range of human conduct while helping them to understand why some behaviors were preferable to others? Women, a lot of women authors seem to believe it was precisely young women who most needed to know about the world in all its messiness. And prefaces announcing a novel's morally rigorous approach sometimes sat uneasily with plots of seduction and betrayal, where girl characters received and wrote the love letters that parents of reading girls were apparently so terrified of finding. This put writing women in another bind. The question of tarbiyah, experience, and impressionability cast suspicion on women as novel writers. If they wrote about clandestine love affairs and fallen women, did this not say something about their own pasts? As has been the case for writing women the world over, women and girls as writers and readers were hounded in a way that men and boys weren't about the links between reading and experience, past and future. Women who sought to write novels and to attract female readers were aware of the fraught debate they were joining. They tried to use the opportunity to advance fiction as a needed socio-political intervention on behalf of women's and girls' aspirations and demands. Most did not sanitize content, and they argued that girls' innocence was precisely the problem. But they had to inframe their stories in insistently moralizing frameworks. Thus, even the reception of the novel was saturated in questions of gender relations in a highly contentious political discursive arena where imperialist arguments for continued British tutelage of Egypt, tutelage being the British word, um, rested partly on the alleged bad treatment of women by, of Arab women by Arab men, or Muslim women by Muslim men. Sound familiar? I've heard this more recently. Um, nationalist reformist rhetoric therefore also positioned the woman question centrally. Of course, this was equally a man question, and novels, especially ones by women, posed alternative models of modern and indigenous masculinity. However, it was most often on female bodies and through feminine subjectivities that plots and resolutions operated. The titles, excuse me, the titles of early novels are the most visible sign of this. As you may have already noticed from examples I've given, many novels bore the names of female protagonists or epithets of female sexual social status and physical appearance, mostly referring to young, unmarried female protagonists. Oops, sorry. And here are some examples. 
My personal favorite is the gazelle of Tanta. Um, but you know, you can see this all the beautiful Circassian, the delicate maiden of Transvaal, um, the Tunisian enchantress, enchantress etc. One in part, um, incomplete list of novels, I think before, until, up until 1910, which lists about a little over 200 novels, lists um, nearly 80 that have this kind of title. So it's not a majority, but it's a very high percentage. Such titles place the lithe young female form centrally. For some writers, this was an instrumentalist focus. Zaydan explained that in his historical novels, quote, the reader reads with desire and pleasure, thinking he is delving into a love story, when in truth he is reading about history, morals, customs, and good character, all of which are otherwise difficult to access except in enormous volumes that the reader cannot apprehend without great labor and mental exercise. Historical novels are not amusements, Zaydan said. They are one form of history. But the love plot was more than a sweetener, even if it was a sweetener as well. It encapsulated issues of political importance, particularly tensions between individual choice and patriarchal family marriage arrangements, between worries over girls' educations and young effendies' demands for polished and presentable wives, between the image of the mother in the home and the mobility of urban middle-class girls. Elite's concern with such issues were not, was not, elite's concern, sorry, with such issues was not simply a response to British imperialist rhetoric. Novel after novel plotted these tensions. Critique of arranged marriages as well as forced unions already oriented the 1870s novels of Salim al-Bustani and Nu'man al-Qusatili. Thus, it was in this context where male authors' fictional constructions of feminine experience and particularly experience around marriage and sexuality held center stage when women began to publish novels. What we can consider the first of these is a reminder that Arabic novels, as I said, emerged from multiple roots, for it was set not within the debate between European fiction and local enterprise, but within earlier Arabic forms of writing, as its rhymed title suggests, outcomes of situations in words and actions. The author, Aisha Taimur, was born in Cairo into an eminent Turco-Kurdish-Egyptian family. Her father was a scholarly government official who apparently preferred the bookish life, and her mother, whose name we do not know, was a freed Circassian concubine. At Taimuria, as Aisha called herself in her writing, was tutored at home as a child an education she resumed later in life after domestic obligations eased and after her husband died. She was amongst the first Arab women to be published in her lifetime, and at her death she was well known as a poet and prose writer both. Her collected poetry came out in 1885, and its, appar its success apparently encouraged her to try prose as well. And so outcomes was the outcome of that. Taimur's narrative has been noticed for its prefaces autobiographical passage on the author's desire as a small girl for book learning. The passage is equally important as a narrative strategy. By reminding readers of Muslim believers' responsibility, quote, to make the garden of knowledge the focus of their gaze, end of quote, Taimur validated her narrated childhood yearnings and foreshadowed her plot. She reminded readers that female believers and authors face particular challenges. For example, her inability to, quote, enter the male, whoops, sorry, enter the male scholars' section, sessions. What prevented me from obtaining this hope 
was the veiled seclusion of the all-enveloping cloak, while the key that locks the secluded space of femininity blocked me from the glow of these moons. My place was the prison of ignorance, and I was the companion of burdens and heavy responsibilities. These veils are my greatest excuse to those casting blame for whatever lapses this writing may expose. Fine company of readers, do not blame a woman who is hidden away. Do not toy with a rape-like prisoner. For Timur, the modesty trope inscribes what I see as a feminist record of the structural situations that deter women's participation in the public sphere of written communication. That Timur did write and publish this novel was, of course, the most effective declaration one could make that such deterrents were not absolute. She might be in seclusion, but her book and her name were out in the world. Partly a performance for female readers, Timur's preface framed a story of learning. A young man in the novel proper, or the work proper, must learn integrity and responsibility. For that, the value of worldly experience is paramount. What does this mean for a secluded woman like Aisha Taimur? The main story um, in this, this work narrates the coming to age of a young prince, Mamdur, whose education has not been properly disciplined. His father's vizier and boon companion, Malik and Aqil, concerned about the kingdom's future, persuade the king to allow them to take over Mamdur's training. Competition arises from officials running the military and the treasury who try ruses to win over Mamdur. This is a canny gender reversal on al part. Trickery in the oral storytelling tradition and canonical religious texts was often associated with females, Kaid and Nisset. Those stories also did abound of male Fetua tricksters. But Maka'id al the trickery of men, as Timur calls it on page 12, most often against the young and females, becomes a leitmotif in women's fiction. The stories that Malik and Aqil tell Mamdur in the novel and a series of trials by journey educate him into becoming a responsible individual who has learned the duty of care and the contribution of good listening and good judgment to governing a flourishing polity. Only then does he deserve marriage to the well-educated and deeply wise Buran, daughter of the ruler of Persia, selected by Mamdur's handlers as a woman who would positively influence the wayward young prince. The work argues for imaginative prose as tarbiya, with the role of the female writer inserted both through the preface that advocates girls' education and in periodic invasions of the author-narrator's presence into the story itself, when characters call on her wisdom to make an aphoristic point. So you'd be moving along reading this narrative, and suddenly a character says, listen to what a taimuriya has to say about this. And then we have a couple of lines of poetry from the poet. So it's very, it's very nice. Um, Natej's narrative structure is complex, story embedded within story. The frame story that I've been talking about is pedagogically intertwined with the embedded stories. The main one of these concerns two Egyptian merchants whose reversals of fortune have a lot to do with the women they choose to listen to. Women's ethical practical choices and advice and men's reactions and decisions lead to spectacularly good or spectacularly bad results of circumstances. The plot thus supports the frame story's positing of a more egalitarian or at least consultative approach to governing self, family, and polity. The work inhabits the pre-modern world of Islamic empires and the circulation of people, goods, and stories therein, from Sindh to Sudan. 
Its reliance on older genres, rehla, the picaresque maqama, the mirrors for princes genre, the embedded story structure of al-Falayla wa Layla, does not deny it contemporaneity. In its emphasis on education and the recognition of others' rights, the work responds to 19th century political concerns. It also touches on contemporary gender issues. Just to give you one example, when the two corrupt bureaucrats mount a coup following the king's death, they fend off the vizier and the companion by claiming that Mamdouh has married a European woman and gone off to Europe. Though the setting of the novel invokes Abbas at Baghdad, this would resonate in timeless time. Young men's alleged abandonment of duty and country via European women as seducers of the nation was decried in the press in the 1880s and 1890s when she was writing and publishing this. Storytelling as a mode of imparting knowledge is a central theme in the novel, countering prevailing suspicions about imaginative narrative as respectable literary endeavor. Furthermore, by linking her own training as frame for a story of education into adulthood, highlighting her fiction as a discourse on moral issues and bringing herself as a wise character commentator into the story world, Timur quietly dismantles arguments against women's authority and capability as writers. So being one-handed here is a little tricky. Rather than positioning a Timur-esque narrator externalized yet peeking over a character's shoulders ready with a rhymed aphorism, Alice Elbostani's only novel, Saul Iba, which means correct or astute, but is also the name of the main character, which was published three years after Nateish came out, relies strongly on dialogue, starting in the middle with a conversation among women conveying the intimacy of domestic chat. And I'll just quote from the very beginning of the novel, just briefly. Who's at the door, Chayzoran? Every time I'm set on going to the souk, some visitor shows up. It's as if God himself is determined to delay this wedding. My sister Afifa is relying on me to get together her daughter's trousseau. Come on in, Chayzuran, who is at the door? This novel, among um, many other features that make it quite um, fantastic, um, the way it represents women's speech um, is, I think, just really fantastic. Um, El Bustani then introduces her character and her setting through an evaluative and didactic depiction of class status. The home of Bikbashi Faridun Bey, husband of Fahima Khanum, sat by the Bosphorus. The room's simple, elegant furnishings indicated its inhabitants' fine taste and the watchfulness and good management of the mistress of this house, especially since she had studied in Istanbul's schools, receiving refined training. A Christian Lebanese who moved to Egypt, El Bustani may have preferred to portray Muslim women at a geographical ethnic distance, so she chooses Turks in Istanbul rather than Egyptians in Cairo, to diffuse sensitivities over a quote-unquote Christian writer critiquing Muslims. But in this novel, Islam is not the issue. Men are the issue. Istanbul as a setting also allowed another flexibility, there, elite women had begun to practice more publicly visible sociabilities. These are evident in the novel's comings and goings, which are crucial to the plot. Female characters shop, and they go picnicking on the Bosphorus. Like Timur's, this novel highlights tarbiya, equating undisciplined upbringing with bad masculinity, while equipping heroines with strong moral and domestic arts training, plus the ability to read letters and novels. 
Farid grew up expecting to marry his cousin Saliba. She has been educated thoroughly in the arts of Turkish rhetoric and home management, while he, quote, had never gone beyond the basic reading and writing he had acquired. Chivalry and tales of love attracted him, and he happily joined the companions of bad behavior. End of quote. By age 17, Farid has squandered his inheritance. His mother, like Mamdouh's handlers, believes marriage to a good woman will reform him. But cousin Saiba will not bow to custom. Though both mothers work on her, quote, she gave a firm no, arguing she was still young and had no inclination for marriage, while not mentioning anything that might lower or hurt him. Too intelligent and well-trained to either fall for her cousin or to insult him, she tries to balance personal preference and moral outlook against kinship's claims. Fulsome descriptions of Istanbul's intellectual institutional scene, printing presses, newspapers, schools, brings us to the military college and Lutfi Bey, diligent graduate from, quote, an old family, unquote, with some income from real estate. Thus, the plot sets up opposing models of masculinity. One, a paragon of judiciousness based on good education, family background, and sound management of self and resources. The other, a dissolute because untrained youth. Lutfi might be attracted to next door Saul Iba because, oddly enough, he can see her in her garden when he looks out the window. Um, but what decisively strengthens his desire is, quote, what the women of his family had to say about her refinement and morals. End of quote. With Lutfi and Saiba married, our narrator reveals something else. O oh, reader, from the conversation between Fahima and Senia in chapter one, you learned that Farid was Saiba's paternal cousin. But until now, we have concealed some details that it's time for you to enjoy. After seeking your permission, we will usher you inside a home tucked away in a corner of Bayulu. So then, we voyeuristic readers find ourselves viewing a stage concealed behind it a gambling parlor where Farid converses with his scheming Greek friend, Boulos. A description of Farid as urbane, if hapless, chameleon trickster gives the theatrical stage setting particular purchase. The novel stages its layers of deception, as did the Victorian sensation novel in England, reminding readers that nothing is as it seems. Planting anonymous letters, Farid is able to erode Lutfi's trust in his wife. One scene demonstrates Albustani's debt to the European romance tradition, especially the strain highlighting the suffering of wronged women. The scene alert readers that women throughout history and across the globe had faced such trials. Lutfi comes home to find Saiba reading, weeping over the tale of the famous legendary Genevieve de Brabant, deserted by her husband when a jealous rival intervened. Like Lutfi, the husband is too ready to believe others only over his wife. The novel, Saul Iba, might be seen as a rewrite of this legend, which the character Saul Iba explains to her husband as being, quote, about how a wicked liar spoiled the marriage relationship, end of quote. Though Lutfi fears to be like Genevieve's husband, he ends up succumbing to cross-cultural stereotypes that conveniently for men brand women as naturally untrustworthy because naturally susceptible, invoking Cade and Nisette. This European tale was winding its way within Arabic culture. Alice may have gotten it from the men in her family. Genevieve appears in the massive encyclopedia Da'irat al-Ma'arif that Alice's father and brothers had issued volume by volume since 1876. 
A few years later, in 1896, Genevieve's story was featured in Zeynep Fouez's biographical dictionary of world women, even if it was a legendary rather than historically attested biography. Fouez's evocation of the romantic twists and turns and her highlighting of the ruses of treacherous self-serving men differed markedly from the Albustani men's much cleaner version. Like Genevieve's tale, Alice's plot turns on men's ruses of exposure, attempts to lure women into closed spaces and seduce or abduct them, usually the latter because the women are usually too aware and too smart to actually be seduced. Exploiting notions of honor cynically by putting women in situations where appearances compromise them. Repeatedly in women's fiction of the time, male characters engineer a mise-en-scene wherein a woman is espied in the company of an unrelated man, a meeting she has not arranged. Farid lures Sa'iba to a hotel veranda with the lie that Lutfi is wounded. I quote, almost instantly she recognized Farid's treachery and her own compromising position. If Lutfi were to learn that she left the house and met Farid, it would affect him badly. It was a blow to his honor. Lutfi, distressed by the false letters that Farid has sent, gladly accepts a posting to Salonika to take over the security there, leaving his wife in Istanbul. As in Time War's work, the personal story merges with the story of the state. In less than a week, he has turned it around, reversed the security situation, faces assassination plots, and in a culminating standoff, he and his men face Farid, Bulas, and their gang. Lutfi is finally persuaded of his wife's innocence, but neither state nor marriage is secure, for both are built fragilely on corrupt internal legacies. The ending delivers the forceful message that when honor is at stake, women pay the price for men's ruses. Sa'iba dies in Lutfi's arms as he confesses how wrong he has been. Farid's bullet, which was meant for him, has hit her. Lutfi may have learned his lesson. The last line in the novel reads, he was true to her all the rest of his days and gave charity to the poor in her memory. But she's dead. <laughs> While the tensions between ideals of romantic love as the basis for successful marriage and the male first cousin's traditional right to marriage structures the plot, at the story's core is the fragility of trust in a context of deep-rooted suspicions about women's sexuality, impressionability, and liability to be led astray, exactly the accusations leveled at the novel genre itself, especially when in young women's hands. This novel is unusual as the story of a marriage rather than a story culminating in marriage as the happy ending. The novel challenges the prevailing reformist critical vision that implied that if you just educated girls and you went some way towards creating, um, and, you, and you allowed partner choice and you allowed young men and young women to meet each other before marriage, then everything would be companionate and it would create harmonious families. And I think these novels really challenge that idea. Now, um, I'm getting a little low on time here, I think. I'm just gonna talk about Zeynep Fawez's novel, but I think what I might do is just go to my final example. Um, the, the turn into the 20th century, as you saw from my list, saw more novels um, by these women and by others. But I want to end by briefly mentioning two novels by Afifa Karam. Karam was born in the Lebanese village of Amshit. 
She married within her extended Maronite family and moved to the United States. She wrote for the New York Arabic newspaper, Al Huda, and in 1912, she brought out her own magazine, Al Alam Al Jadid. She also translated novels. Her first novel, Badi'a Fu'ed, 1906, do I have it? Um, yeah. Begins with a flock of Lebanese village girls en route to the village spring. The Lebanese countryside's natural beauty embodies the innocent loveliness of these girls who are not yet weighted down by the full water jugs they, they will carry back to the village, which are emblematic of the burdens they will bear on their much longer journeys as single female emigres. But first, let's listen to her preface. Amongst these novels, Karam presents the most direct and directive prefatorial statements with the clearest sense of audience. She assumes there is already a female audience receptive to novel reading as a mode of learning, and this is interesting in 1906. She announces the novel as a women's literary moral amatory novel and declares female readers are more affected by novels than by other genres, but in a positive sense rather than in the scare discourse these novelists had to counter. She eschews the modesty trope, but only to highlight her reformist aims. I do not like giving copious apologies for flaws, she says refreshingly, or expressing hopes to rise above them. I say in all simplicity and freedom that on this novel I hung all the thoughts that came to me during the six months leave I took from El Hoda to write it. My aim was supporting reform. I did not write a single word without hoping it would lead to benefit for the sons and daughters of my kind. Though she does echo the defensiveness of many prefaces, Karam in this statement is persuasive when, when you read her novels. They are conduct books lightly clothed in plot and character. On every page, there is a kind of um, didactic framework in case the reader misses the point. Um, but, but, it's still, but she's still taking on all these issues in a quite strong way. Writing in 1906, her words evinced confidence, perhaps a sign of maturity of reflection inhabiting the still young Arabic novel genre and its female practitioners. She also tackles readers' sensitivity to contents, trying to preempt that familiar tendency to attack female authors' moral integrity by suggesting that anything untoward in their fictions must come out of personal experience. Her readers, she says, must forget that the author is a Syrian woman if only while reading the novel. As I wrote these lines with my inner ear, as I write these lines, with my inner ear, I can hear them criticizing the author because she wrote about love and marriage. Karam argues that imposed bashfulness is what causes harm, for it keeps people silent on the truly important flaws in society. She also assures her readers that all profits are going to go to a charity that is supposed to help homeless girls. Not surprisingly, her novels assiduously maintain a didactic narratorial frame, blending authorial nostalgia for Lebanon with preaching. For instance, in the opening scene at the well, and I'll just quote briefly, a beautiful spot is dear Lebanon, and its beautiful pure women are fresh lilies. But how regrettable. Look at her, how wilted she is, for the moist droplets of trained refinement are absent. Our women are pretty, yes. Good and intelligent, yes. But what use is an implement if there is no hand to steer it or remove the rust? As much as the Lebanese value learning, they deny it to females. Our two protagonists, Badia and Lucia, differ from the other girls clustering at the village well, for they have been educated and, we learn, they are leaving for the United States the next day. The immigrant experience frames this novel even in its village opening, 
suggesting how thoroughly that experience saturated the society of Mount Lebanon. Badia represents this experience poignantly as the orphan girl who must make her way in the world alone. A complicated tale of class difference and self-making, the novel touches on familiar themes, young men's obliviousness to the additional and specific pressures young women face and their resort to ruses of seduction, the weight of custom as falling more heavily on women, the importance of work and self-initiative, and the question of balancing indigenous and imported practices. As it portrays young Lebanese women starting a new life as itinerant peddlers in the American Midwest, the novel indicts the prevailing discourse on gender identities, sexuality, honor, and blame. Karam's second novel, Fatima el-Bedouia, is the improbable tale of a young Syrian Muslim Bedouin woman who is seduced by an urbane Syrian Christian man and ends up as an abandoned single mother on, in Manhattan. Fatima the Bedouin begins proleptically with Fatima cradling her infant son as an NYPD agent accosts her on a wintry Broadway pavement. This novel, improbable as the plot is, raises very tough issues and it sets them into a transcultural, transcultural context of women as disprivileged subjects through the voluble friendship of Fatima and Alice, a privileged American woman who has undergone her own sufferings and ends up taking Fatima and her baby in to her luxurious flat on the Upper East Side. Karam's novels include some forthright feminist observations and consistently show honor as a ruse deployed to control women's bodies and minds. But the novel's frontispiece reminds us of how anti-patriarchal discourse had to be embedded. Under the author's portrait runs a quotation from her. The suckling child is the man or woman of the future only if it is on the breast of a woman of trained refinement and excellence. Karam's novels, like others by Arabophone women of her time exhibit ambiguities and tensions that ran through early Arab feminist discourses. Through plots, character portrayal, and didactic framing, they highlight how gender assignment and social and sexual pressures hamper and even destroy females' lives and, in the name of honor and paternal right, disallow their freedoms of choice and disavow their voices. Yet they also uphold the era's discourses of domestic duty, which, however much they foreground female ability and energies, tend to buttress male authority in the family and community. This double-edged and double-voiced perspective is also evident in novels where young women's accomplishments are juxtaposed with their early deaths as the price they pay for going outside of the expected arena of, what, of young women's um, lives. Such novels, I think, would have given girl readers and, one hopes, boy readers as well, a lot to think about. Thank you for listening.